You are listening to the SCC Cast, weekly teaching and preaching from Springview Community Church. Find us on the web at www.springviewcc.org. We are located at 12881 Andersonville Road in Davisburg, Michigan. We welcome you to come as you are to experience a friendly worship setting with biblical preaching, teaching, and application. Now, here's Pastor Ben Glupker. Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. We are week four in a series. Matthew's chapters 11 through 13. uh, A series entitled, Are You the One? And this morning we'll consider the one who makes us take sides. The one who makes us take sides. Matthew chapter 12. We're looking at verses 22 to 37 this morning. Matthew chapter 12. Matthew 12, verse 22. This is God's word. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Well, knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, By whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they'll be your judges. But if it's by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, well then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Well then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever's not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, Or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you're evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, On the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Let's pray. I pray that you would speak, O Lord, to us now by your word. That we would have eyes to see, ears to hear, Minds to understand, hearts to believe, and the will to obey. 
So please speak to us and use your word now in us for your glory and our joy. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a remarkable passage. And the thing that jumps out most at us is Jesus' harrowing words in verses 31 and 32. It says, there's a sin that cannot and will not be forgiven. It is an unpardonable sin. Commit that sin, there's no hope. Probably more than a few of us have worried at some point in time about whether or not we've committed that unpardonable sin. Maybe there's some of you this morning saying, well, I wasn't worried about that until you brought it up. This is serious. It, we need to think about this together this morning, and, and we will. But the unpardonable sin isn't actually the main point of this passage. At least it's, it's not the main concern that we should have or that we should take with us as we leave this morning. You know, the, the main point isn't, well, whatever else you do, don't commit the unpardonable sin. I mean, don't, but it's actually something much more subtle that we need to focus on here. Look back at your Bible. These two paragraphs, the one that starts in verse 22 and the one that starts in verse 33, really should go together. My Bible, the ESV, after, right before verse 33, creates a new topic. It says, a tree known by its fruit. But they really should go together. If you have the NIV, they get this right. They put these two together. Each of these sections closes with a summary conclusion. Look at verse 31. It says, therefore I tell you, and then he makes his point, Look also, though, at verse 36. I tell you, and he makes his point. In each of these sections here, the point has to do with speaking. It has to do with words. So back in verse, verse 31, he says, I tell you, every sin in blasphemy, and blasphemy is a sin of speech, it's a sin of of words. That's why in verse 32 it'll talk about speaking a word against the Son of Man or speaking a word against the Holy Spirit. It's a sin of speech and of words. And we look at the next section in verse 37 um, or verse 36. I tell you on the day of judgment people will give account for every careless word that they speak for by your words you'll be justified or your words you'll be condemned. The section is about words. The concern is for things that we would say. And we see at the very end of it, verse 36, I tell you, on the day of judgment, there is a day of judgment coming. It is certain. I don't know when that date is, but God does. And the date is coming. There will be a judge. God himself will be the judge, and we will stand before him, it says. And he says, it is on the basis of your words that the verdict will be rendered. It's as though we're, we're sitting in a courtroom, and God is standing there as judge, and we're before him, and, and God calls into the witness stand our words. And says, here's Ben's words. What do we need to know about Ben? And my words will be a very reliable 
witness. You don't get to rely on a prepared statement. It's not like a lawyer in a courtroom with his prepared opening address or concluding remarks. It's not like a politician who never, has, never strays from his talking points and says, I'm only going to say these, you know, focus group tested things. You can't rely on a prepared statement. It says, every careless word you'll give an account for. The words that come out when we're not watching too closely or trying too carefully. The words that come out just because they're in there. The words of which we might sometimes want to say, oh, I, I didn't mean to say that. You give an account for every careless word. This is a passage about our words and what our words tell us. Well, let's see what it is. Let's see how Jesus gets us there. Back in verse 22, Jesus performs a miracle. A man is demon-oppressed, and he's blind and mute, and it's going to become clear that the way Jesus heals him is casting out the demon. The demon is causing his blindness and his muteness. The, the, the demon is physically harming him, which is no surprise. That's what Satan and demons are out to do. They're out to harm. But Jesus, Jesus isn't real concerned, and Matthew, as he writes this, isn't concerned about so much about the healing. He doesn't build it up into a big story. He doesn't tell it with dramatic effect. He just says, there was a demon-oppressed man. He couldn't see, he couldn't talk, and Jesus healed him. And then it's the reaction to it that Matthew's concerned about. There are two. The first one is the people, it says in verse 23, all the people were amazed. And they said, could this be the son of David? Now, the son of David language is loaded. In other words, the son of David, what they're asking is, could this be the one? Could this be the descendant of David? You know, David is promised in the Davidic covenant back in 2 Samuel 7, you will always have a king to sit on the throne. And, and in some of the apocryphal literature that isn't actually in the Bible but was important to Jews in Jesus' day, it talks about in a book called the Psalms of Solomon uh, that a son of David will come and restore Israel. And so that son of David language is concerned about the one who's going to come, restore the fortunes of God's people, rule over them, and care for them forever. And they see these miracles, and they say, could this be the son of David? That's the right question to be asking. What they're really saying is here, could this be the Messiah? The evidence points in that direction. Just back in the last chapter, in chapter 11, you remember at the beginning, John the Baptist sends his disciples to Jesus and says, hey, are you the one? And Jesus says, well, look what, tell, Jesus, tell John, the, the lame are healed, the blind can see, the deaf can hear. He just, look at the evidence. Look at all the evidence that I'm the one. It requires supernatural power to cast out demons. And Jesus is doing it regularly all the time. So the response of the people here is logical. It's, it's the right question to be asking. Could, could this Jesus be the one we're waiting for? That's the first response. But there's also the Pharisees. They see the same miracles. They're smart people. They could draw the same conclusions. They're smart. 
but they're stubborn. So they settle on an illogical response. Kids do this too, right? When they're stubborn. We had an episode just this week. Two kids come up, they're all upset. They did this, they did that. They, they took my special bag and jabbed a pin right in it, made a hole in it. Why did you do that? I don't know. Well, why would you, are you doing that just to make her angry? No, I'm not. Why would you jab a pin through her bag? It's just, I just something I wanted to do. I don't believe you. <laughs> Kids get stubborn and illogical like that. I just wanted to do it. That's kind of like what these Pharisees do here. Look at verse 24. When the Pharisees heard it, about these miracles, they say, it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. In other words, Satan himself. It's only by Satan himself that this man casts out demons. It takes supernatural power to cast out supernatural beings like demons. And the Pharisees are stubborn. They refuse to acknowledge that it could be God's power doing this. So they find themselves forced to take the only other option. Well, it must be Satan's power that this man is doing this with. That's a serious charge. It's an ugly charge. They're saying, Jesus, this guy's a minister of, of the devil. He's an agent of the evil one. He's not the son of David, God's Messiah. He is the son of Satan, the spawn of the evil one. And Jesus says, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Well, not literally, but I mean essentially. Look at verse 25. He says, knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. No city or house divided against itself will stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? See, in other words, you would have us believe, Pharisees, that Satan's strategy for promoting his kingdom and defeating God's kingdom is to thwart the work of his own demons. That that's, that's your suggestion? That's what you think he's doing here? That don't make any sense. Make any sense at all. But but they've been pushed into this spot, the Pharisees have. And they're stubborn enough and they're hard-hearted enough to try to hold that ground. It's a terrible argument, but it's the only one they've got. Jesus says in verse 27, Your exorcist casts out demons, so whose power do you give credit to for that? Well, clearly they would say God's. And he says, Well, of course. If it's Satan's satanic power that casts out demons, they've, they've just delegitimized their own exorcists. But Jesus is getting to the heart of the problem. Look at verse 28. He says, if it's by the Spirit of God I cast out demons, well then the kingdom of God has come upon you. If God, if Jesus is casting out demons by the power of God's Spirit, then he must be God's king. That's what Jesus has been saying all along. Right from the start, his message is repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is near. Why? Because Jesus, God's king, is here. That's always been his message. 
And if Jesus is casting out demons, he's displaying every time, more powerful than Satan, more powerful than the evil one. I'm destroying his kingdom. We read earlier in 1 John chapter 3, early in our service, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Verse 29, he says, how, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. So look, you can't break into someone's house and take his stuff unless you can overpower the guy who owns the house. If you can't overpower him, you're not going to be able to take his stuff. Jesus saying, that's exactly what I'm doing. Going into Satan's kingdom, binding him, releasing people that are enslaved and captive to him, winning victory over them. If Jesus is God's king, he can't be despised. He can't be rejected. He can't be ignored if he's God's king. The Pharisees are clinging to this stubborn argument because it's the only one they have, as terrible as it is. But if God's kingdom has come on, if Jesus is doing this in the power of the Spirit, he can't be ignored. Verse 30, whoever isn't with me is against me. You can't be neutral toward Jesus. Not forever, at least. For a while, you may take some time to read, to consider to ask questions, to, to honestly seek the truth, and, and you should for a while, but at some point, the truth is there if you're really looking for it, found in the pages of God's Word. Eventually, if you're truly seeking, you'll know enough, not everything. No one ever knows everything, but you'll know enough, and you must decide, with Him or against Him. You can't sit on the fence forever. You're with him or against him. He goes on to say, he says, whoever is with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. You're either with him or against him. You're either working with him or working against him. I wonder how many people there are, maybe even here this morning, who, who've supposed that they could just maintain some kind of neutrality in regard to Jesus. Just keeping a safe distance. Uh, they'd say, I'm not hostile toward him. I'm not opposed. I certainly wouldn't slander him like the Pharisees are doing here. I'm just, I'm just going to keep a safe distance. I, I admire him. I don't have a problem with him, but I'm not going to have him as my king. I'm not going all the way over the fence. I'm not jumping on his side and putting all my trust, throwing in all my cards with him. I'm just going to stay back and watch and wait, maybe later. Maybe later, I'll give my life and self completely to him. But for now, I'll stay on the fence. Jesus says, you can't do that. You can't do that. At some point, you have to decide. With him or against him? For me or against me? Working with me or opposing me. So you have to decide. You can't sit on the fence forever. Jesus says, repent and follow me. You have to take sides. You are taking sides. No decision is a decision. I don't wait any longer. Today's the day. Decide now. And now we reach these striking verses about the unpardonable sin. It starts in verse 31. It starts with, therefore I tell you, Therefore, see, these verses somehow are a conclusion 
from everything else that's been set up to here. Somehow this whole story, this whole conversation has come to this point. I tell you, he says, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Or verse 32, to say it another way, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, even in, either in this age or the age to come. These verses are about sin, specifically about the sin of blasphemy. Blasphemy is speaking a word against God. It's a verbal sin. It's involved words, words that are spoken, possibly words that are written, words that insult God, that mock God, that dishonor or demean or seek to diminish God, using his name in vain, speaking it trivially without reverence or fear or worship. Blasphemy is the, the opposite of praise, which exalts and magnifies God. Blasphemy mocks and insults and diminishes and demeans him. The unpardonable sin is, is blasphemy, but not just, not just any kind of blasphemy. And that's a good thing. Because if any kind of blasphemy was unpardonable, we'd all be in big trouble. We've all used God's name in ways that honor and don't honor and don't exalt and demean him. Every one of us has spoken against God at some point in time. Every one of us has at some point in time misused his name. If every blasphemy was damnable and unpardonable, we'd all be in big trouble. But, but the unpardonable sin is a, is a very special and very serious kind of blasphemy. Jesus separates it this way. First, in verse 32, he, he says it this way. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. See, see people have and do speak against Jesus, the Son of Man. Ever since the day he came to earth and... We'll, Passages like we see right here, up to the present, people speak against the Son of Man. Jesus says this can be forgiven. He doesn't say it's not a big deal. He doesn't say it's okay. He just says it can be forgiven. Well, think about it. Even those who crucified Jesus, who took this innocent man and called for his life out of jealousy or fear or anger or whatever it was. Remember what Jesus hanging on the cross says? Luke chapter 23. He says, Father... Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He says, Father, forgive them. They've crucified Jesus, the Son of Man. He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They act, even in their malice and ignorance. But they can be forgiven if they repent and turn to Jesus in faith. Acts chapter 3, the apostles are preaching in the temple. And they say to the people, the Jews, they're listening. He says, hey, look, you crucified God's Messiah. But he says, I know you did this in ignorance as did your rulers. It was malicious, it was hateful, it was wrong. He says, but you, you didn't understand. I know you didn't get it. I know you didn't understand. You can be forgiven if you turn to Jesus. Many of those people did. I think about the Apostle Paul. Paul was, as you know, very hostile toward Jesus and his church. Seeking to destroy it. Uh, listen to what he says talking about those days later in 1 Timothy chapter 1. 
He says, I thank him who's given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer. Now, now, Paul would not have described himself as a blasphemer in those days. He thought he was doing God's will, persecuting the church. But he said, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord Jesus overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Paul says, I, I, I was a fierce opponent. I, was, I, I thought I was upholding God's name. I was actually blaspheming his name by speaking against his son. But he said, I, I received mercy. I acted in ignorance. I thought I was doing the right thing. When Jesus appears to him, Paul repents and puts his faith in Christ. He's forgiven. People who have done terrible things, really terrible things, can be forgiven. Remember famously John Newton, the writer of the hymn Amazing Grace, was a slave trader, kidnapping slaves from Africa, importing them to the New World. It's a brutal evil man and God changes heart and changes life and he writes about it in amazing grace save a wretch like me says I once was lost and now I found was blind but now I see God forgives terrible sins it's remarkable really but there is a sin that cannot and will not be forgiven the second part of verse 32 he had said, the word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Will not be forgiven. This is a very particular kind of sin. In the context, it's pretty clear what it's about. The Pharisees have seen the work of God casting out demons. There's just no other explanation for it than that's the work of God's Spirit and God's power. And they've said, no, that's Satan. They're attributing God's work to the power of the evil one. That's not God, that's Satan, they say. And they should know better. It's not that they're confused. Their hearts are hard. They don't want it to be God's work because they don't want Jesus to be God's king. And so they'll take this ridiculous, illogical argument and they'll run with it for their own purposes. They're calling good evil and evil good. It's not a sin of ignorance or even of unbelief. It's willful, intentional, flagrant rejection of the truth, even though they know it's true. It's not an accidental sin. Sometimes things happen, it's just an accident. Like, oops, you know. The other night I was getting out of my car and I was wearing my, my AirPods, you know, the little wireless uh, earbuds, and uh, I went to take one out and I had thought, not, not long before this, I should be careful taking them out in my car because they could fall between the seat and the console and be hard to get. I think I had the thought the same day, but not at that moment. And so I took one out, bobbled it, down it goes between the ceiling. Oh, you've got to be kidding me. It's just it's this big, you know. I could, I could barely fit my hand down in there. And I'm digging, trying to, I can't get it. I go inside and get a ruler. I'm trying to, you know, potato chips are flying out, you know, and uh, all kinds of stuff are coming out here. But no, no AirPods. So I, I get out of the car, I reach under. Of course, there's a steel bracket. I can't hardly get back there. And then I got, got the light for my cell phone. And I finally realized that it, it isn't just... It isn't just between the console and the seat. 
It's actually inside this little bracket that the buckle of the seatbelt comes up, dangling on the edge. And so I, you know, it's tiny. I can barely get my hand in there. I'm, I'm like, oh. And I reach in right down to the bottom of it. I'm like, oh, you've got to be kidding me. Very angry. Uh, but I just, he's like, oh, whoop, it just, just a moment of, and I eventually got it out. I, I had these pliers, and I was digging down, trying to grab it with these, they come out all mangled, you know, it's got these, yeah, anyway, it's, it doesn't, they don't look like new AirPods anymore, I can tell you that. Um, uh, at least the left one doesn't. But, uh, but it was just like, oh, whoops, and, and, you know, in a half second, it's done, right? It's just an incidental slip-up, and I almost lost my AirPod forever. You don't commit the unpardonable sin like that. It's not like, oops, I did it, and now, now I'm damned forever. What was I thinking? Why was I so careless? That's not how the unpardonable sin works. It's intentional. It's a willful refusal to acknowledge God's work in Christ. You see the evidence. You read the story. You see what he's done, and you say, no, no, no. It's not committed by people with weak faith. It's not even committed often by those who are caught up in unbelief. It's committed by hostile people who say, I don't care if he's God, I don't want him. True Christians don't commit the unpardonable sin. They can't. I mean, humanly speaking, they could, but they can't. They won't. God won't let them. He holds them in his hand. He won't let them do that. If you're not a Christian, but you're worried about committing the unpardonable sin, you probably haven't committed it either, if you care. If you're still investigating the claims of Jesus and considering the truth and message of the gospel, you haven't committed the unpardonable sin. And, and I don't really think the Pharisees here in Matthew 12 have committed it either, at least not yet. They don't know. Some of these, maybe even some of these same Pharisees who will be there in Jerusalem calling for Jesus to be crucified not too long after this. They'll be among the people that Jesus says, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. They don't know yet at this point about Jesus, his death and his resurrections to come. They don't know about that great vindication of God, of Jesus by God the Father. They're still lost in their ignorance. They're hostile and they're stubborn, but they don't know. That doesn't mean they're innocent, but it's not too late for them to be forgiven if they turn to Jesus. What Jesus is saying to them here is, about the unpardonable sin is, watch out, you're getting close. You're getting close. You're towing up to the line. You're on the edge of the precipice. You're right up against it. Watch out. It's not that they need more evidence. It's not that they can't understand. Their hearts are hard. I don't care what the evidence says. I don't care what the crowds are saying. I don't want this guy to be God's king. I'll call him Satan if I have to. So what's the take home here for us or for the Pharisees? What are we supposed to get from that? Don't commit the unpardonable sin. Well, yeah, don't. Don't commit the unpardonable sin. Don't willfully and hostily and hard-heartedly speak against Jesus, blaspheme him, even, even though you know the truth. Don't do that. But the take home is more subtle than that. It's more subtle. It's very unlikely that any of us here this week or any week will commit the unpardonable sin. That doesn't mean there's nothing here for us. That doesn't mean there's nothing here to examine. Some of us are sitting on the fence. 
I'm not hostile to Jesus, but I'm not in with him either. I haven't really repented and given my heart and life to him. I'm still going my own way. Jesus may be God's king, but I'm my king. I'll call my shots. Jesus, you can't do that. You're with me or against me. You've got to take sides. But there's more here yet than just that. Look at verse 33. He says, this is continuing the same conversation. He says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree's known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, speaking almost certainly to the Pharisees, how can you speak good when you are evil? He says, look, you're evil. So the words coming out of you are going to be evil too. Good trees produce good fruit. In fact, that's how you know it's a good tree. It produces good fruit. Bad trees produce bad fruit. That's how you know it's a bad tree. It produces bad fruit. And he says, he says to the Pharisees, look, you, you, how could you speak good when what's in your heart is evil? They don't think so. They don't think their hearts are full of But there's a way to tell by what comes out of their mouth. The words that they say. Continuing in verse 34, he says, Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You know, that's how you and I tell what's going on in our hearts, too. What's going on in my heart? What's really there? What, what kind of words are coming out of your mouth? Well, if I stop and think and take my time and I'm careful in the company of other people, well, good words will come out of my mouth. Well, sure they will. What are the careless words, the unthought out, the unplanned words that just come out of your mouth? And see, there's a window into what's going on in your heart. See, words, I mean, we know that words are powerful. Amazing things have been done by words. I was listening to a discussion recently about World War II, talking about the ways in which Churchill in Great Britain and uh, Hitler in Germany were mobilizing a people and mobilizing a war effort by their words. Their rhetoric, their talk, their language. Uh, the famous line about Churchill, how he, he mobilized the English language against the Nazis, right? Remarkable, words are remarkably powerful. Words can drive the entire world to war. On the flip side, words have great potential. Words can do remarkable things. Think about the last time someone said something nice to or about you. Something that built you up and encouraged you. Probably you remember that. In fact, I bet, I bet you remember things from a long time ago encouraging, uplifting words that maybe were spoken to you when you were, when you were a kid. But we grab those and we hang on to them. Words have enormous potential. Other people's words in our lives, but of course, the potential of our words in the lives of the people around us, our friends, our fellow church members, our families, our kids, our spouses. Words have power and words have potential, but what we see here is the words are also a portal. They're a window. What's going on in here? How do I know? Here's one way to know. What kind of words are coming out of your mouth? Angry words? You know, again with kids, when our kids get angry and yell, right, it's, it's always something somebody else did, right? They make me so angry. No, angry words are coming out because anger's in here. Selfish words are coming out because selfishness is here. Coarse, vulgar words are coming out 
because vulgarity is here. Words are a portal. They'll tell you the truth. Not, not your carefully prepared words. Most of us are wise enough and careful enough that when we're around the right people, we say the right words. No, it's the words that come out when we're frustrated or angry or sad or tired or not being careful. They become a portal, a window into our hearts. What's really going on there? I've been challenged by this this week. There are words that I say that I, I wouldn't want everybody to hear. wouldn't want you to hear the angry words that can come out of my mouth when someone, some child can't stay in bed. It's infuriating. They make me so... No, they don't make me angry. The anger's here. And it comes out in the circumstances of life. Words are a portal. We, we can examine our hearts by examining our words. This passage is about words. It's, it's about Jesus and how we relate to him and understand him. It, it warns us against this unpardonable sin. Words that insult and mock and demean and diminish God. Probably you're not going to do that this week. But you'll get angry this week. You'll speak angrily to somebody. Yeah. You'll say words that you wouldn't want anyone else to hear when you're frustrated and upset. You may not tell the truth. Our words reveal what's going on in our hearts. Jesus is God's king. His spirit empowers, God's spirit empowers Jesus to cast out demons, vindicates that he's God's king, that we should submit to him with our lives, with our hearts, with our words. There isn't a person in here this week, there isn't a person in here who doesn't need God to impact and change some of their words. But the issue is not just self-control, it's in the heart. We need God working in our hearts so that our words will be pure, peaceful, agreeable, edifying, encouraging, motivating, loving, honoring to God. Let me give you just a second. I'm going to pray in just a moment. Let me encourage you to bow your heads right now and just take a minute and ask God, where, where do my words need to change? Where does my heart, what's going on in my heart that leads me to speak words like this? And let me give you just a minute to ask God to work on that this week in your heart and life. Father, I pray, I pray that you are a gracious and merciful God. Even the, the hateful, unbelieving, unjust actions of those that crucified your son, you forgive when they repent and turn to you. Father, I'm thankful that there is, there is just no sin we might commit that you won't forgive if we come to you in humility and repentance and faith. And Father, if there's anyone here this morning who's sitting on the fence and needs to commit to you today, I pray right now, they would acknowledge their sinfulness before you and say, and say God, God, I, I want to trust in Jesus. I want to submit to him as Lord and Savior. Give my entire life and heart to him. I pray they do that right now and never look back. I pray for all of us this morning. All of us have hearts that are reflected in our words that need to, need to grow and improve and change and become more pleasing and honoring to you. Father, I pray as as we've taken just a moment now to think about 
those areas you want to work in our words, I, I pray you would do that graciously for us this week. I pray that you do that graciously for the people who will hear our words. Father, it's not just, it's not just you that hears our words. The tree is known by its fruit. Our, the people in our lives, they hear us too. We want to be known as people with hearts that are full of all those fruits of the Spirit, love and joy, peace, patience, gentleness, all of those, we want, we want our speech to reflect that work of your Spirit in our hearts. Father, I pray you do that, that you'd work that in us, in our hearts, in our family, in our church. For your glory, I pray in Jesus' name.